0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 17th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Middory House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, France announces an international architecture competition to rebuild the spire of Notre Dame Cathedral in the wake of Monday's devastating fire. Spain bans a far-right anti-immigrant party from taking part in a major television debate in the run-up to next week's general election. My guests Flachon Spiedemann and Michael Binion will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a warning to the global financial sector from the governor of the Bank of England. Stop ignoring the catastrophic effects of climate change. And it took four years to build, cost over a billion dollars and has the world's biggest indoor waterfall. Welcome to Singapore's new dual Changi Airport. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guest today are Florence Biederman. She is the London Bureau Chief of Agence France Press News Agency. And Michael Binion. He is the Foreign Affairs Specialist for the Times newspaper. So, welcome both of you to the program. Now, the French government will hold an international architecture competition to rebuild the spire of Notre Dame Cathedral, which was destroyed in a major fire on Monday. The blaze, which almost brought down the iconic medieval building, caused extensive damage. The authorities haven't estimated the repair costs, but President Emmanuel. Macron has said that Notre Dame will be rebuilt, quote, even more beautifully within five years. Florence, has Mr. Macron set himself an overly ambitious target because the the damage to Notre Dame has been pretty extensive? And of course, the surviving structure is in an extremely vulnerable state. So five years is a bit tall, isn't it?
1: It's certainly a challenge, but I think these guys love the challenges. And by the way, five years mean that uh, he could still be, or he hopes to be in power to supervise all this. Uh, and it's just for the Olympic Games too. No, but yes, it's, it's very difficult to, to say now. It, it depends on what you call really rebuilding. Maybe parts of the world could be done, but really renovating it, it also depends of the choices that are going to be made. Are you going to to redo it as it was with the wooden frame, or are you going to do something more modern? I mean it's it, it all depends on so on the kind of works you you, you you're ready to do but certainly uh, I think it was good for him to show himself as the man of action the one who is really acting in a moment of uh, national uh, sadness and uh, even despair and also considering the incredible uh, international reactions
0: mm. let's explore that point uh, a little bit later on but but Michael in terms of the target, he might get it done. That is the hope, the expectation. But if he doesn't, there will always be the accusation of mismanaging public expectations.
2: No, I don't think so, because I think after five years, there will be enough that will be completed. So they'll be able to reopen the main church, even if they're still doing some of the stonework or some of the woodwork or something of that kind. The actual roof, I think they can get that on in five years. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an architect. But uh, they're going to start the uh, uh, lumberjacks are going out to the French forest to fell 13,000 French oaks soon. So
0: they're going to be very busy. They'll be busy. (laughs) and
2: I mean, the competition will be opened. I mean, uh, right now, there'll be uh, major uh, architectural firms thinking this could be the contract of the century. uh, And they will be looking at it. I think everybody is very keen to show that it can be done. It is a challenge. It's a psychological political and of course uh, architectural and cultural challenge
0: yeah i mean it's interesting as well Florence, about this this competition because you can see what he's doing obviously it's a huge challenge so throw it out to the world but i guess that if you're very patriotic you might say well hang on a minute you know we live in france we built it so surely our own craftsmen should be the ones handling this project this baby belongs to us
1: i'm not sure there is that kind of reaction because we know we need help from uh, everywhere i mean it's it's such a, a, a big uh, uh, work and uh, also th- there are some doubts on the fact that there are enough people, like, uh, trained to, to do that kind of repair. I mean, we, we also uh, saw that, like, for when Windsor Castle was, uh, you know, renovated. I mean, you really need people with a, a very special knowledge and there are not that many uh, of them around because it's a very specialized work. It's not one of the most paid in the world, you know. I mean, you earn more money when you, you build fancy architectural palaces or uh, offices around the world. So, it's it's very uh, a niche activity, let's say. So, definitely uh, I, I haven't seen so far reaction of people saying it should be a French business.
2: And of course, uh, don't forget that the Bundestag, the German Bundestag, was built, rebuilt by a British architect in the heart of Berlin. You so know, this is an have...
0: example of Europe working together. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I, I
0: had to sneak point. in kids. <laughs> 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 but I mean, look, Michael, Florence touched on this a few moments ago, in fact, about um, what this is doing for for, for President Macron as the, the man of action. I mean, look, he has taken a severe bash in the polls. We know that we've had the Julie Jean protests, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, a symptom of that. But, you know, how would you rate, so far, the way that he has approached this huge challenge? And could a favourable response translate into improved poll ratings?
2: Well, it could do, but um, most presidents rise to the occasion when some dreadful tragedy happened. happens. I mean, think, for example, uh, Hollande was president when you had the Bataclan massacre. And everybody said he did a great job on television, you know, expressing the uh, tragedy, the anger, the dignity and the reaction of the people. But it didn't really help him in the long term at all. And I think uh, it depends. I mean, yes, of course, Macron has um, personified the national mood very well. And he's shown himself at the front of the efforts to get things done, to, to symbolize the nation's sadness and mourning. Will that translate into political points? For a while. But in the end, people are going to start grumbling about, you know, standards of living, things that day-to-day necessities that is what, in fact, turns political elections one way or the other.
0: Mm. So, Florence, he may get some traction from this, some uplift, but don't count on it lasting for too long
1: no not for too long and remember also he was supposed on the day Notre Dame uh, uh, burnt like to, to to give a solemn speech to the nation to conclude uh, two months of great national debate and to present the reforms uh, he's uh, going to make to satisfy I mean not all the requests of course but to try to satisfy and to calm this angry mood and uh, and the yellow vest movements and in the end he had to cancel so cancel and postpone it so it's just kind of a a truce for him of several days but Mm. definitely French people are still waiting for for these reforms
0: yeah and and that's that's the the interesting thing as well which I'd like to explore very briefly because you could argue that uh, it could be what's happened at Notre Dame could also be an excuse for sneaking in some bad news, but getting it in and under the radar because people are distracted. I'm actually paraphrasing something which happened in mm-hmm. the United Kingdom with a former advisor to Tony Blair, who actually said 9-11 was a good, a good way to actually bring in some, some news but things which would get people animated, Michael.
2: Yes, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I don't think they'll try to sneak in some uh, reaction to the protests or anything like that. Uh, I think this is a time of coming together. And I think people see that it is really completely separate from politics. This is a, an issue that is a sort of national, cultural uh, feeling of national identity. Uh, and I don't think um, there's a chance that they will try to get uh, political things pushed through the, so that nobody will notice. I mean, if they did, people will be watching. I mean, that that's an old trick that people mm, are now aware of. They're wise to it. Yeah, they are.
0: But in, in terms of... Um keeping people together? Because yes, Florence, it it has brought the public together in a sense of collective grief. But again, how long can that last? And more importantly, where does this leave the gilets jaunes movement? Because they have been protesting every weekend. Presumably, nothing's going to happen this weekend. It would be so unseemly if they did that.
1: I'm not that sure. And when you say, how long will that last? It has stopped
0: already. I mean,
1: there is already uh, some polemics, you know, like uh, people on the left reproaching all these uh, uh, big uh, industrialists who announced like uh, 200 million yes. euros. Et Why uh, don't you give this uh, uh, money to to help uh, the homeless in Paris instead mm. of giving, you know, to, uh, and to uh, some gilets jaunes repro- representant, I mean, as individual, because they never speak for the collectivity. They are not allowed to. But I said, OK, now back to Earth. What about the reforms you are going to announce, Mr Macron? So it's it's a very, very short lull, I would say. Mm. So there may not be some protests on Saturday. There may be some. Uh, they, they wouldn't be big anyway, but uh, it's not over. It's right. definitely not over. Everybody is expecting now, again, the big announcement uh, Macron is supposed to make.
0: Mm. So that could actually reactivate it. But Michael, you know, we, we have seen this intense reaction to the fire. Why does Notre Dame have such a powerful influence on the French psyche that people are crying in the streets? They've actually been holding vigils, they've been singing hymns, they've been praying.
2: Why? It is the centre of Paris. It's the historic, uh, cultural, religious and political centre of the French nation. And therefore, throughout, uh, well, since Middle Ages, uh, in literature, in painting, in art, in culture, in everything, it's the, it's always been there, and people have always known it's been there. It would be the same reaction, I think, in Britain if either St Paul's Cathedral or Westminster Abbey was destroyed. But it's more so because so it's older than both. You actually see
0: people crying or are actually praying, singing hymns in the streets, and that happens to St Paul's. Or? I think you
2: might see that if Westminster the Abbey went, very, went up in flames because the
0: Brits are seen as very reserved. Well,
2: stiff only, upper lip. yes, but maybe remember. less Catholic also. <laughs> <laughs> And, I mean, they're not that reserved. Remember when Diana's Diana's death, you know, had people weeping in the streets and flowers all over the place and people suddenly said, have the Brits lost their traditional reserve? (laughs) I mean, I I think people react in quite similar ways in in many countries. And um, an event of this kind, first of all, it's the shock. Secondly, it's the sort of horror of all this happening. I think um, it is something that has moved a whole nation because they were helpless, just watching it happen sure. before their eyes. Um, a little bit, seeing that spire collapse did remind me mm. of the collapse of the Twin Towers in yes. 9-11. Yeah. Uh, do, right.
0: uh, does, does that explain, Florence, why the reaction, the sense of shock, sadness, it isn't just restricted to France, it's exported. We're seeing it replayed elsewhere in the world.
1: Yeah, I agree with Michael. I also had this thought like when the spire uh, collapsed. Uh, and I think also Notre Dame, thanks to Hollywood, <laughs> <laughs> became also kind of something which everybody knows and has kind of familiarity with the building and not like in big terms of Christian faith, whatever, but it's just like the location of those this wonderful story, uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm. Uh, so there, it's part of the popular culture all yeah. around the world, but in, in in a nice sense, like some like some, some place you you can fantasize about. There are all these stories about Quasimodo. So it certainly also played play a
0: role uh, abroad. Mm. I think it also popped up in an Inspector Clouseau film, but we'll discuss mm-hmm. that later. Let's move on now to Spain because the election board in that country has banned a far-right party from taking part in the televised debate next week in the run-up to the general election. Now, the controversial anti-immigration Vox party caused a major upset in December last year when it won 12 parliamentary seats in regional elections in Andalucía, beating predictions that it could only capture five. Now, the Adres Media Network invited it to join a debate of four major national parties. But the Electoral Commission ruled that Vox's inclusion would violate electoral law. So, Michael, the point here is that the law is the law is the law. But that presumably that's not going to stop Vox from claiming some kind of a political victory by saying, look, you know, this is an example of the state's elites using whatever they have to hand to suppress the voice of the people.
2: Yes, of course they'll say that. And the more they say that, the more they'll probably win votes. Uh, It's a difficult one because if they do have widespread popular support, then probably they ought to be included in any national debate. But the problem is they don't have any seats in Parliament. And you can't admit a party that, in terms of parliamentary representation, doesn't exist yet. Uh, And so uh, the Electoral Commission, I think, has taken the right decision, but it will be under pressure to include them in some way. And perhaps they may be... Brought into other forms of debate. The other thing, of course, is that the more parties you have taking part in any debate, the more chaotic it becomes. Uh, Four is already quite a lot, five is more. Uh, You know, you can go on and on and add other parties. Uh, So uh, the fewer you have, the more clarity any of these debates does give electors. But uh, I'm not sure that um, the Vox Party will take this quietly. They will clearly use it for all it's worth to win Mm. support.
0: And I guess, Florence, as well, it's, it's up to the electoral authorities to really construct a powerful narrative that runs counter to that, that it isn't seen as elites, the establishment, call it what you will, simply abusing their authority, but actually laying it out plain and clear. These are the rules. We are following the rules. It doesn't really matter who the party is. If you actually fall below the threshold, you're not getting in. It's as simple as that.
1: Yeah, let's see how the the electorate will react to the party. I think that's the most important in the end because you you have to think also it's a really far-right party. I mean, they have uh, ideas like they are... uh Um, They are anti immigration but you know they are uh, anti-independence they want to uh, uh, suppress the the devolved ruling in Catalonia I mean they are kind of really uh, how would I say retrograde in a way and Mm. uh, so do you want to see that kind of party have this big national exposure in TV when again yes they represent 0.1% of the vote nationally Uh, I I don't think that there are many reactions so far who are really uh, very critical of uh, uh, the decision of the Electoral Commission. But what I really... I'm curious about is to see what how they will poll in the end, you know? Mm. How this kind of ideas, which is uh, so popular now in, in Germany or in France, whatever, how is it going to to, to, to poll in, to fare in, uh, in Spain? That's, and, uh, that's the most important yeah, in the story. I yeah. think
2: they'll poll quite well, actually. I yeah, mean, they're I mean, anti-Islam and Spain is now suffering the same wave of people crossing over from North Africa. Uh, Islam immigration, in many people's minds, it's the same thing. Uh, and they are worried about uh, people coming into Spain Spain has been quite liberal so far unlike Italy which has taken a very tough line and of course there is going to be a reaction already in southern Spain there is some reaction to these people whether they're legal or even uh, uh, illegal well illegal especially Mm. but uh, I think they will exploit that they're not anti-Europe which is quite unusual for a populist party but they're part of this general wave of populism Mm. and I think think they're they're cashing in on
0: that they're opposed to to laws um, banning domestic violence they just feel they're tilted yes more in favor of men or too too far in favor of women not not term reflective more of men well
2: uh, of course uh, they're pulling in traditional voters with traditional attitudes and you know older voters and those who are uh, against any any sort of new thinking I mean that's an easy easy target for any right-wing party but the populism element of it which is you know we are the real people the liberal establishment is suppressing mm. the uh, proper debate and the liberal establishment has got a stranglehold on all of Europe and all that that is a notion that is spreading right throughout Europe and it's not surprising that it's surfaced also in Spain. Sure, but then something else which is emerging
0: in Europe, we've certainly seen it here, Florence, is this whole question about parties that are to, to some point to the right and they have an agenda that A lot of people find offensive, but then conversely, there are many who embrace them. I'm thinking specifically of parties like UKIP, for example, and this big debate that's raging in the British media as to whether the former leader, Nigel Farage, should be given sufficient airtime because he was quite a dominant figure um, in in the run up to the Brexit vote. And even though he's no longer leading the party, he has his own radio show, he writes in newspapers, etc. He pops up on the news.
1: Yeah, I saw in a recent poll that is uh, also uh, one of the the first party in in uh, uh, the um, the polls for for the European election. Like his new party, the party of Brexit, is leading right now. Mm. I mean, okay, it can change. It's only a poll, but so I, I, I'm not sure I would compare Farage with uh, with what's happening like uh, in uh, in Spain. And uh, uh, as uh, Michael said, uh, this uh, Vox is pro-Europe or at least not anti so uh, to, to, I, I'm not convinced they will have such such sure. a, a success uh, that uh, Farage could have with Brexit they don't have such a strong idea or program behind them apart from yes refusing uh,
0: mm. uh,
1: gender laws or refusing migrants but this is uh, so is it enough to to really make them uh, uh, strong I mean let's see of course they, they will gain votes uh, Let's see if, mm. if it's that much.
0: But conversely, Michael, sometimes it does make for very entertaining television when you have somebody who has a right wing agenda, whatever, who does very, very well. They then have the debate and it's almost like a blood sport that you see them being crushed. Now, we saw this, for example, when Nick Griffin, who was the leader of the BNP, a far right party in the United Kingdom, appeared on Question Time and was basically destroyed by the audience and the panellists. And famously, Marine Le Pen up against Emmanuel Macron, who basically destroyed her.
2: Yes, but it doesn't always work like that. Remember the presidential <laughs> debates in America? Everybody said <laughs> Hillary Clinton, they said, walked it. She That's was by aberration. far the stronger. And who won the election? It wasn't Hillary Clinton, alas. Uh Yes. I mean, these debates are entertaining and they are. And some people are quite clever knowing how to use television as a medium to get their message, but also their personality across. Uh, and very often people don't listen to what the words are. They look at how the people uh, behave, how they perform, how they, what their gestures are and all that. And people like Farage are pretty good at that. Mm. Uh, and it depends uh, if there's a debate and if... The leader of Vox is a charismatic personality. I haven't seen him in action. But if he is, uh, he might, if he's on television anyway, mm. he might build up a cult following that way. Right, so
0: it could be the it's almost like the flower to the, the sun to the flower. But there you go. Anyway, you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests are Florence Biedemann and Michael Binion. Now, coming up next, a warning to the global financial sector from the governor of the Bank of England. Stop ignoring the catastrophic effects of climate change. <music>
3: What's the secret to a happy life? Join us in June in Madrid for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life Conference to find out. We'll be asking the important questions and proffering a few unexpected answers on everything from the future of our cities to deft design, from hospitality to the finer things in life. You'll find counsel from the food players laying the table for success, the entrepreneurs we're backing, and plenty of lessons, scoops and insights gleaned in the Spanish capital and beyond. You'll meet the likes of Carla Susani, a pioneer of the slow shopping concept, who'll be showing us how to perfectly unite culture and consumption. Enric Pastor will tell us how to create a design magazine to last and what the Spanish media scene can teach the rest of the world. Award-winning photojournalist and documentary maker Ron Haviv will tell us how to capture the moments that matter. And Olga Keflagiani, former Greek Minister of Tourism, will tell us how to get resorts in the Med back on track. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference takes place in Madrid from the 27th to the 29th of June. And there's more good news if you're a Monocle subscriber you get a 10% discount. Head to conference.monocle.com now and watch the film from last year's event and buy your ticket for this year's edition. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world.
0: Still with me are Florence Biederman and Michael Binion. Now, the Bank of England governor, Mark Carney, has surprised the world of finance by talking climate change. In an open letter to the Guardian newspaper signed by Mr Carney and the governor of the Bank of France, he warned banks to stop ignoring the catastrophic effects of climate change and for governments to stand by their Paris Climate Agreement pledge to keep temperature rises well below two degrees Celsius. So could central bank governors be the eco-warriors of the 21st century? Florence, I mean, look, Mark Carney wrote this letter at the same time that we've got the (laughs) Extinction Rebellion activists protesting in London about climate change. So how much of a game changer is this letter in terms of really accelerating the climate change debate? I don't know if it
1: was a coincidence, but really the fact that it'd be on the same day as those activists of uh, Extinction Rebellion, like blocking the tube, uh, uh, bridges, etc. was really funny in a way, because ah, suddenly you discover that they are uh, on the same fight, which you had not that much noticed before, like uh, Extinction Rebellion being more like Occupy Wall Street and putting into question all this uh, system. So why not i mean it's every every goodwill and every uh, contribution uh, is good so and OK, what what Carney said is uh, is not revolutionary. It's not that he suggested revolutionary measure, but definitely to to try to, to convince uh, companies for their own sake, by the way, to, to start really actively preparing for mm. a transition can only be positive in the global system, even if it's not a revolution.
0: <laughs> Michael, do you also get the sense, though, that he's being a bit demob happy? Because, look, he got bashed over the head because of his Brexit uh, forecast. I, I couldn't resist bringing it in. But mm-hmm. I mean, he got bashed over the head by the Conservatives, etc. We know that he's not going to be in the job forever. At some point, he wants to go back to, to Canada so he can afford to tell it as he is. He's mob happy.
2: Up to a point, yes, but he's managed to convince his French colleague to be also D mob happy, and I don't <laughs> think he's about to quit. Uh, of course, both... Um, uh, France and Britain have an interest in climate change. They've been both quite active in trying to uh, phase out, uh, for example, petrol cars is one thing that's going to happen. Uh, There's more to be done. This demonstration, of course, will anger an awful lot of people who are inconvenienced when they travel to work. But I have to say, sadly, it's a political truth that nothing ever gets done unless somebody goes beyond, goes too far. You know, people demonstrate, think of suffragettes, you, a woman throws herself under the king's mm. horse in order to get attention. Uh, and I, it's almost the sad thing to say that quite often, Terrorism or something like terrorism almost works. You know, it draws attention to a fact, it makes things inconvenient for ordinary people and particularly for politicians. But the Bank of England's intervention, I think, is more subtle because this is saying it's in your financial interest to do something about this. Don't invest your money in uh, diesel and petrol cars, you will go bankrupt soon. Do invest your money in green technology. This is where the trend is going. That being said, I think a greater force of all this is one single man on television, such as David Attenborough, warning us about plastic uh, destroying the oceans. That has had more effect than anybody could possibly have imagined.
0: Mm. And, and Florence, I mean, the thing, the thing about central bank governors—not all of them, but a fair few of them—they they are independent, so I guess that that gives them some authority. But will governments be prepared to work with them? Because look, at the end of the day, it all boils down to politics and what they think they can get away with when they feel, well, what they believe, the electorate likes
1: but I think it's thanks to politics that the governor of central banks are adopting that kind of stand now Mm. Uh, and by the way I mean they are part of uh, I discovered the existence of this network of greening the finance system so it's more than two men I mean it's uh, uh, like a handful of uh, central bankers but uh, I mean I would say look at what happened like with the Trump refusing to, to sign the Paris agreement I think there are more major decisions that have to be taken and that in this decision central bank because don't have that much Mm. But but,
0: uh, There's something which you said, but I'd I'd like to throw to you, Michael. Mm. Because, look, if we go back to 2008, the Mm. global financial crisis, the hope of many people was that out of that, you would have a recalibration, if you like, of, of capitalism. You can't get rid of it, but you've got to find a way to make it work a bit more efficiently. They feel disappointed because many would say, look, it hasn't happened. So is it climate change that could be the trigger? So if that's the case... Surely that makes the governor's remarks all the more prescient.
2: I don't think uh, there will be a reformulation of capitalism because of this. I think there will be uh, a change of where consumer societies are going and what consumerism is all about and the whole idea of valuing the earth, valuing its resources uh, and stopping uh, activities that actually endanger our entire planet. That will be given a boost. Uh, I think uh, from the global financial crisis... There was a certain amount of change in regulation, for example, of capitalism. There was change about who you lend to, how you lend, Mm. how banks take risk, things of that kind. Some banks were fined huge amounts of money for uh, unethical behaviour. That hasn't changed the whole capitalist system, but it has uh, modified it to some extent. And I think uh, gradually, uh, as more and more emphasis is put on stopping behaviour that is clearly harmful to the environment, that will modify things.
0: Okay, then let's move on now to our final subject, because. It took four years to build at a cost of over a billion dollars and boasts the world's biggest indoor waterfall. After endless hype and media coverage, Singapore's long-awaited dual Changi Airport has finally opened for business. The dramatic donut-shaped exterior, framed in steel and glass, is a multi-use complex designed to connect three of Changi Airport's four terminals. The architects claim it has given Singapore the world's best airport. Are they right Are they right, Florence? You're very well traveled, I assume, so you can actually make that judgment. (laughs) I'm so unlucky.
1: I never went through this. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, okay, now the description you give, obviously, I I would like to see that. But I have the feeling it's not an airport anymore. It's kind of an amusement park. Yeah. Yeah. uh, uh, In in such a small uh, state city uh, as Singapore, I mean, you can understand that they do their best to to attract uh, attention and tourism, but uh, yeah, definitely, no, I wish I could make a stopover.
0: <laughs> no, but, it, but it's a very valid point, isn't it? Because you read about it and yes, it's splendid. But as as Florence said, an airport, surely it should be in a theme park or something with giant mice running around or people well, dressed up in mouse, uh, mice, mice suits. They're trying to make it both.
2: <laughs> I mean, they're trying to make it a place where everyone goes because it's such a sort of cool place to be and it's so exciting and so beautiful and all that. Uh, and of course, it's the whole idea of Spend, spend, spend. I mean, there are going to be a lot of upmarket shops all yeah, trusted around. Yeah, there's like ten around.
0: stories on this Oh, yes. It's <laughs> the whole idea of, you know, you'll
2: find the, the all the, you know, swanky uh, fashion shops will all be there with our outlets. Uh, I'm not sure that it's what you need at an airport. And the other thing is, of course, if you're trying to attract passengers to go there they're going to have to break their journey, spend their time, <laughs> or you know, they'll miss their plane if they're sliding down waterfalls. planes. I, I
1: mean, the it's skatering. not
2: really the best place because uh, air passengers, they want to just get off one plane and get onto another one.
0: Yeah, and, and that's the point, isn't it, Florence? People don't really care about that. It's airport security and baggage handling. Just as long as everything works smoothly, you can collect your luggage at the end of the journey. That's what counts. I mean, who gives a damn about the waterfall? <laughs> I don't agree, <laughs>
1: You no. care about the waterfall. I, I do care. No, the biggest in the waterfall, I wish I could
0: see it. <laughs> do you know what? I just have just imagine a Busby Barclay scene with Esther Williams, whatever her name was, popping up out of the water or something. That's my imagination. That may happen one day. It may <laughs> happen, indeed. You'll you? get
2: a climate change protester <laughs> surfing down it.
0: <laughs> now you've ruined it. Extension Rebellion
2: protesting
0: <laughs> against it. <laughs> on that note, it brings us to the end of today's show. Florence Biederman and Michael Binion, thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Teresa Mavuli, and our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next than at 1900 hours. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bach. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm
3: Juliette Foster. Goodbye.